let's see, where do we want to start tonight? I might be able to get one more sermon out of this series, but this may be the last one in teaching on lived experience. We've been purposely dismantling uh, modernist ideologies and philosophies. I'll review it again. The modernist and the university academic and all of their woke underlings, they like to talk about lived experience uh, as if it was something special. And you've got to be mindful. You and I don't have permission to exalt and idolize where we come from. Because you are one of 7.5 billion people on the planet. If it were not for Jesus Christ, you would have no value. I mean, according to evolutionists, we're just scum that evolved past a monkey. Now, we're all special. We're worth the blood of Christ, and Jesus died to redeem us, and we're, we're worth his blood, and so we are special. But we're watching uh, Marxist ideologues try to divide us, and it's, when they run out of things like money or race, they kind of come up with other things like lived experience. And really, it's just another tool in a propagandist uh, tool chest, and we reject it because now that we're born again, we are one body. Red and yellow, black and white, we are precious in his sight. And we're called of God to be tempered together to do the work of God. And even in this room tonight with this assembly, the lived experience in here is so diverse and so wonderful and so tragic and so beautiful and so disgusting that we just all thank God that the blood of Jesus covers it and can redeem us and disciple us out of it. Furthermore, if your lived experience is horrific, why would you want to keep advertising Satan's success? Why give him credit? So I don't get it. But the woke ideologue, the Marxist ideologue, he likes to use that as a tool. So what we've been doing for the last couple sermons is looking at people in the Bible who had lived experience, which, by the way, you do too. By the way, we're giving our kids a lived experience right now. And we looked at how their lived experience hindered their ability to serve God. And if the name of the game and if the end result or end aim is to glorify God and to finish our race, then we don't need to be exalting our lived experience. We need to be looking for what needs to be repented of, burned to the ground, torched, buried under a ton of rock, paved and put them all over it and move on. Amen. Amen. And, uh, you know, if you're your lived experience is horrific. The more you talk about it, the more you'll give it to your kids. And if it hasn't done you any good, why would you be so wicked and selfish to give it to your kids as an inheritance? If you're a victim and being a victim is stinky, and I'd like to use a stronger word than that, why would you gift that to your kids? Why not teach them to be victors? But kids learn life from mom and dad. So if you're a victim, probably because mom and dad were, and they taught you to feel sorry for yourself when Jesus never did. And chances are, if you don't get the victory over it, let me disciple that foolish demonic attitude out of you, you're going to hand your precious kid victimhood as well. And uh, that's horrific and unbiblical and shame on you. My Bible says I'm more than a conqueror. I'm a world overcomer. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And either you believe that or you're a disciple of this woke generation. And I reject the woke 
generation because I'm a victor. Has nothing to do with my skin color. My black friend from Africa, a real African, he said, whose fault is it you're white? I was offended he called me white because I had a box of crayons as a kid, the big fancy 256, and that was more like peach. That was more like color of wheat. That was more like a beige. Why am I called white? Now, my boy, he's white. He's more like skim milk blue. He pulls up that shirt. Behind his little muscles, you can see organs. That's how white that boy is. I can't tell where the underwear stops and the skin starts. <laughs> but I'm 152nd, 3rd Cherokee, so I have a little bit darker skin than that. He gets his pastiness from his mother. She's white. <laughs> no, we reject all that foolishness. It's demonic. It's demonic. And if you're stupid enough to believe the propaganda that America holds the corner market on racism, you're a narrow-minded fool. And you've never left your neighborhood because what we have here is child's play compared to the prejudice and the racism that they've mastered in other places in the world. 16 years ago, I was sitting in Lester Sumrall's office. Never met Dr. Sumrall. He went to heaven. But I was sitting in his office in his chair across his desk from his nephew, Pastor David Sumrall from the Philippines. And he'd been pastoring in Metro Manila for 30 years at that time. And he was still dressed like a Filipino, even though he's a white guy from Mississippi. So he was telling me about himself because I was about to go minister, or not minister, but be a, an intern in Metro Manila. I had made a commitment to this one-year internship. So he was preparing me for Manila and uh, the things of Southeast Asia. And he said, I'm from Mississippi. He said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Louisiana and Tennessee. He said, all right, you know the racism we have back south? I said, yes, sir. He said, child's play. What do you mean? He said, you've never seen racism, son, until you sit in a room with a Chinaman, a Filipino, and a Jap. He said, you've never seen racism like that. Those three hate each other with a passion you can't even begin to understand. And you and I are sitting there thinking, well, they all look the same. That's racist, right? By today's woke standard, that's a racist statement. Because the Filipino says, I look nothing like a Japanese. The Japanese will tell you, I'm nothing like a Chinaman. They all hate the Japanese because of World War II, which, by the way, is a lot more recent than what maybe you're thinking of. You ever heard of the rape of Nanking? It's a Japanese aggression in mainland China. You know anything other than Black History Month? Maybe that's why I'm touching on this, because anyway, you should probably know more than your favorite color. So anyway, he just said, you need to be prepared. There's a lot of prejudice and a lot of racism, but to you and I, yellow is yellow, right? Isn't that all the same color? Isn't race about color? But to you and I, being ignoramuses, a Chinaman, a Japanese man, and a Filipino, they're all the same color. And yet they'll hate each other with a passion. And trying to get them to serve Jesus in the same church was a challenge. So all this black-white stuff, flush it. It's of the devil. Quit. If you would ignore it, you wouldn't be a part of the problem. Just live for Jesus and quit making excuse out of it. But that's your lived experience, and it's going to hinder God's ability to use you. Amen. So that's what we've been talking about, lived experience. Because we looked at Peter. He had a prejudice against the Gentiles, but he caught that in his own culture, and it hindered him, and God had to work with him, and God had to work with him, and God had to work with him. 
Then we looked at Moses. He was raised an Egyptian for 40 years, and that was not enough. That was not good for what he was called to do. So the Lord had to take him to Midia, another culture, and untrain him for 40 years and put Midia in him. And then he had to, at that point, he was then ready to go and be a Hebrew. He lived three separate lives. 40 years in the world. Egypt always represents the world with all the wisdom and understanding of the world. Then he had to go and be completely deconstructed and reprogrammed, going from a major industrialized civilization like Egypt and everything we think with pyramids and sphinxes and, and, and obelisks and astronomy and witchcraft to go hanging out with desert people in the tents, Bedouins for 40 years, totally retrained because how he was raised was not going to work like how we were kind of raised. Ain't going to work. That's why we're still being discipled, right? Then finally, he, he was ready to go do what God called him to do uh, with the last 40 years of his life. If he thought he was going to do it in the city, he was mistaken. 40 years in the desert chasing sheep was going to prepare him for the last 40 years of his life in the desert chasing sheep. <laughs> Submit to the process. You don't know what God's trying to do in you. If you're in charge, you're not much of a Christian. So then last week we looked at Paul, and he wasn't prejudiced against anybody. He was very cosmopolitan, very international. He just had a favoritism that kept getting him in trouble. He favored the Jews too much. And we saw how the Lord Jesus, the night he called him, he said, I've called you to the, Jew, uh, the Gentiles and then kings and then the Jews, the children of Israel. But everywhere he went for all of Acts, who did he put first? And who gave him the most trouble? And when he got arrested, what did the Jews do? Gave him back to the Gentiles. Even the Jews are like, nope, go to the Gentiles. So by the time he starts writing his epistles, he finally has a revelation. My number one calling is not to my favorite people. He didn't hate the Gentiles, but he did have a favoritism that he wanted to take care of first. So there's a problem with lived experience. And I don't know how this is ministering to all of you because we all have a different thing we got to overcome, a fear, an insecurity, a trepidation, an ego, Today we're going to look at, or tonight we're going to look at maybe a confidence we have to be careful of. We need to make sure we're allowing wherever the Lord has us to, to work the aggressive thing it needs to work in our life. It doesn't just have to come in church. The Lord will put you under a boss who will break you down and deconstruct you, and you've got to be able to look for the hand of God in that. God will give you a professor. God will give you a neighbor. Everything will work to the glory of God if you'll submit to it. He'll, he will prove you through all sorts of scenarios. We're not trained in disciple just entirely through the church or through the scripture, but through situations and scenarios, God gives us an opportunity to do the word. It could be the loud, noisy neighbor who plays the music till 3 a.m. and rather than curse him and hate him and want to move out and be a coward, lay hands on that wall and believe them into the kingdom and maybe cast the devil out of them. We as Americans are cowards. We run from way too much. Or maybe we're too confrontational. I don't know why everybody's upset at this whole Karen phenomenon. Karen is the epitome of feminism. Maybe you have a Karen in your life. Maybe you are the Karen in somebody else's life. Uh, maybe the Lord wants to break that down and break it out of you. But... For me personally, you know my testimony. I was given a Muslim boss. I had nothing against Muslims. He was my boss when 9-11 happened. Work that out. When you're sitting there with your boss and you watch Muslims crash airplanes, some of you are too young to remember that. I watched it live on television. I was 25 years old working for an international engineering firm working with Muslims. 
I never had anything against Muslims. It didn't ever bother me. But that boss was ruthless. I was threatened to be fired at least every other week. I was cussed constantly. Today they'd call that toxic workplace. I just called it a good boss. We did amazing work. He knew how to get it out of us. But what he was doing, what I could see the Lord was doing through him, even though he's a Muslim, he's a pagan, uh, I had a lot of hippie that needed to be broken out of me. I wasn't just a hippie. I was a hippie artistic geologist, which is the worst thing you could ever put working for an engineer. Because an engineer wants to know something to the 19th decimal place. And I'm like, uh, let's drill over here. <laughs> no telephone poles? Yeah, I think this will work. And the engineers are having a fit. Come on, man. We deal in chunks of 100,000 years at a time. What's a meter or two to you? A lot. Got a bridge. So I kind of brought that flippant, artsy, whimsical daydream. And it wasn't a daydreamer, but I just wasn't fifth decimal place accurate. And that's what my boss needed. And he cussed, he cussed it into me. <laughs> and I caught it. And I was telling, I think I was telling AJ, I didn't catch excellence from the church. I caught excellence from a Muslim. That man worked 90 hours a week. He was brilliant, dressed amazing, knew what he was doing. And I wanted to be like him in that regard. I had a Christian friend who actually helped get me hired. He quit because he couldn't handle it. He didn't want to be disrespected. I said, what's it? I didn't tell him he's a little bit older than me, but I'm thinking, what's it to you? We're all getting paid the same here. We have an opportunity to grow a division with a company that's growing. We have, take a couple of cuss words. You'll be fine, princess. There's a reason he's the vice president at 35 and we're nothing. Just shut up and let him perfect it. There's something in him that the bigwigs can see that we're just happy to be under. I don't want to be, I can't be, I can't be talked to like that. I got my respect. Man, you're cocky. You pay money to be cussed at. This guy's paying you money to cuss at you. Sort this thing out. <laughs> so Peter was anti-Gentile. Moses was too Egyptian. Paul had a favoritism. We've got something in our life that's going to hinder us. I can tell you, just thinking back 20 years ago, when, 21 years ago when the Muslim hired me, the way I pastor today is the result of a lot of Muslim cussing. <laughs> because it put a diligence a strictness, a demand of excellence and an expectation in me that charismatic couldn't do, Baptist couldn't do, my professors couldn't do, but being under a bunch of internationals. I worked with the Jordanian. I worked with a Ghanaian. I worked with an Indian. I worked with a Syrian. I worked with a Turk. I worked with a Pakistani. They were all masters and PhDs. Working at that caliber, you walk a little taller, you feel a little stupid, and you just run as fast as you can like the fat kid in gym class trying to keep up with these brilliant people, and you see how they operate, and you're like, I want to be that way. Or you can say, it's too hard. It's too much. And then your life just goes where it is. So maybe before we move on with David tonight, what is it the Lord is dealing with you? He's trying to get out of you, that lived experience. My dad was a mechanical engineer. I caught none of it. My dad's a brilliant mind. 
but I didn't catch it. I was, I'm more like my mom in that she's a little bit more whimsical. My brother's more like my dad. And so me coming out of Seattle, kind of hippy-dippy, listening to a lot of Bob Marley, rock climber, snowboarder, mountain biker, backpacker. Uh, then I get into geology. This is like a recipe for living in a hippie bus. I can tell you I've never done drugs illegally. I've had a lot of prescription drugs with all my injuries, but something had to break all that out of me. And it was a lived experience that was going to hinder anything I was going to do for Jesus. The second you start saying, this is just me, this is just who I am, you're a liar, and you're going to hinder God's work in your life. Because if you think he's happy with how far you've come so far, and this is where he's done with you, you are duped. Because we are a work in progress. Even the Baptist taught me. God loves you just the way you are, but he ain't going to leave you there. But you have to desire to want to be changed. And we all, we all have something wonky in us that is the lived experience that the Lord's going to bring out of us. And your boss may do it. Uh, a professor will do it. Maybe a, a personal trainer will do it. You should not chase comfort. You should chase people that disrupt your little soul and see why you're disruptible. Because once you're established, nothing moves you. You don't get offended anymore. The preacher cannot offend you anymore. I'm the biggest guy in your life who's for you, and I can offend you. You need to grow up. If I can push you over that easy, you're tippable. Dr. Barclay tells me, if, if your people can't take a rebuke from somebody who loves them, they'll never make it out there serving God. So let's talk about David. David's lived experience. David is very interesting. We don't have time to do too much of a deep study. About two or three years ago, I did a PowerPoint on the probability, the, the, the more than likely case that David was a half-breed. Remember that PowerPoint I did? And I don't have time to go into it tonight. There's a lot of speculation that he was not a pure Israelite. And we'll look at a few of those scriptures. And I want to build this case to let you know that he, wasn't, he didn't have a race issue. Peter did. There was a cultural issue with Moses, as we've discussed. Paul wasn't racial, but he was a little prejudiced, a little favored. We don't see any of that in David. And more than likely, that's because his heritage is so mixed. David's past was a perfectly balance of ethnic cultures. He shows absolutely zero partialism in any ethnic direction. Race or tribe mattered nothing to him. Even his lineage was mixed. And that's, that's my speculation. I think I can convince you of it in the next 15 minutes. When you look at the life of David, he did fight Philistines. He was anointed to, but he was also friend with the Malachite kings. He was friends with Amorite kings. He really did a lot of weird things nobody else did before or since. In fact, even the tabernacle of David, he appointed Gentiles to help keep the tabernacle. That's called the tabernacle of David. It's talked about in Acts 14. And the prophecy, the prophecy of, of the minor prophet was that in the last days, God will resurrect and rebuild the tabernacle of David. The tabernacle of David is where Jew and Gentile worship Yahweh together. That's the church. Because now Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And if, let, me, let me hit on this cultural pride thing. There's only three species of being in the earth. Jew, Gentile, born again. That's all there is. Jew. As far as I know, we don't have any Jews here. We're actually friends with an Israeli lady in town. Sweet lady. She's a Christian, but she's Israeli through and through. 
So now she's born again. So you're either a Jew, and if you are, you're going to hell if you're not born again. Or you're a Gentile. That's every other race or tribe or creed or color. And if you're not born again, you're going to hell. But if you are born again, we don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You're just born again. That's what the Bible has to say about racial reconciliation. Let's stick with the Bible. Let's leave all the politics, all the culture, all the sociology aside because it's all muddied and demonic anyway. Jew, Gentile, born again. David doesn't really seem to care. Everywhere he goes, he's friends with everybody. When we look at the lineage, he has a tremendously mixed lineage. Going back four generations, his great-great-grandfather was Salmon, not Salmon. Salmon married Rahab. So Salmon is a Judite. Rahab is a harlot. She's a Jeroquitus. She's a Canaanite. So in the very beginning, we have mixed breeds. So they give birth to a mixed breed son named Boaz. So Boaz is half Gentile, Canaanite, half Israelite. And then this half-breed Boaz marries Ruth, a Moabitess, who according to the Jews is the great-great-granddaughter of Balak, who tried to curse Israel. She's also the granddaughter of Ehud, excuse me, the king. Um, he, she's a descendant of Eglon, who's a descendant of Balak. So now we have a half-breed. I don't know if that word offends you. Here in a second, we'll talk about a quadroon. I don't think you know what that is, so we'll say a bigger half-breed. <laughs> By the way, if we're all white here, unless we're just real Africans, we're all mutts. Or if, like, you just came off the boat from Scotland, we're mutts. We're so mixed up. Amen. So then they give birth to a boy named Obed. So he's really mixed up. We don't know anything about his wife. It's all quiet there. And then he has a child named Jesse. And Jesse has a child named David. He has eight sons, but David is the youngest. Now, this is where it gets fun. We don't know anything about Jesse's wife, but we know David is ruddy. That means he's redheaded. And it's talked about throughout the Bible. Even Goliath says, what's up with this redhead? Well, the red-headed kids come from the Edomites, Esau. Esau was ruddy. The Edomites were ruddy. Jews are not ruddy. David is ruddy. So this is where you go, Jesse, um, where does this boy come from? When we first meet David, he was ruddy and of fair countenance. He was a handsome boy, but he's ruddy. Goliath is offended. Who sends me this ruddy kid? <laughs> so Jesse has eight sons, Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah, Nathaniel, Radai, Ozum, and David. And David has two half-sisters. This is all in the book of Samuel and Chronicles. Zariah and Abigail. So David has half-sisters. This is what we want to focus on here for a moment talking about the complexity of David's background and why he doesn't care anything about tribe or race. Because if you didn't know, it's all just parts and dirt. That's all it is. I mean, we're, we're in pride over dirt. My dirt's a different color than you. Yeah, well, we're all still just dirt. 
the arrogance, the arrogance, the arrogance. We're, we're in pride over dirt. But you can make a lot of money if you can harness people's pride on their dirt. Booker T. Washington called it race baiting. He said over 120 years ago, there's a lot of money to be made through racial hostility. He made that observation a long time ago. So this sister of his, Abigail, this is not his wife. He marries David, goes on to later marry a woman named Abigail. She was the wife of Nabal, the widow of Nabal. Abigail, according to 2 Samuel 17, 25, Abigail is the daughter of Nahash. Abigail is the daughter of Nahash. She's not the daughter of Jesse, which means David and Abigail have the same mom. All right? You follow me? Sometimes family trees get a little crowded. So David and Abigail have the same mom. But Abigail's dad is Nahash. David's dad is Jesse, which means whoever this Nahash is, he slept with the same woman that Jesse did. So who's Nahash? Nahash, ah, <laughs> uh, he is an Ammonite king. Nahash is an Ammonite king. So we don't know because the Bible is quiet. How does Jesse, a Judite, who's actually got very mixed blood, how does he end up having sex with a woman who also had sex with an Ammonite king? We don't know. Is it concubine? Was, was, is David older? Is Abigail older? We're not even sure of that. We don't know who's older, but we do know that when King Nahash dies and his son Huan becomes king, David says, I want to go be good to the son because his daddy was really good to me. So think about it. David wants to go help the new king because his daddy was very good to David, the Ammonite king. So the point is there's a lot of mixed genealogy going on here. David's ruddy. His half-sister is half-Ammonite. His daddy apparently was having sex at some point with a woman we don't know, but she, he's the only kid he sires with her. And she was apparently at some point connected to an Ammonite king. Being a king, it's probably a concubine, but did she escape and Jesse fell in love with her? But remember Psalm 51, David said, I was conceived in sin. I wasn't conceived with sin. We all have the sin nature. That's how it often gets read. I was conceived in sin. So he's acknowledging what my mom and dad did was sin. We also see over and over again, David's brothers mistreat him. Even one of the Psalms uh, 26, you see a lot of complaints about how he was mistreated by his own brother and he was an outcast. He was a stranger. Anyway, all this works to show us that there's a lot of stuff going on. Abigail married an Ishmaelite. So She's half Jewish, half Amorite, but she doesn't have a problem marrying an Ishmaelite, further indicating a, a loose conviction about intermarrying. And all this was in steep violation to the laws of Moses. But we see this kind of loosening of bonds here in the life of David. And this lets us, David can see people are people. He has no Jew, Jewish or Judaic prejudice against non-Jews. He sees what uh, Nahash was. He knows who his mother was. She probably was uh, an Amorite. That's my speculation. His half-sisters are half-foreigner. His grandparents are half-foreigners. He, he sees that God receives everybody. 
Except even the law of Moses said you'll be good to the stranger and let them serve with you. They want to. So this is why he has no problem when it comes time to erecting his tabernacle and putting the Ark of the Covenant in there. He, he grabs Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Obed-Edom, not a Jew, a Gittite. Obed-Edom from Gath. Obed-Edom, the Philistine. Gath, Gath is where Goliath is from. So Obed-Edom might have been a neighbor of Goliath, but he's the guy who's a doorkeeper for David's tabernacle. All of this is just to say, this is not David's problem. He doesn't have a problem with what color you are, what language you speak, your tribal custom, who's your king, where you pitch your tent. He don't care about any of it. It's not his issue, but he has issues. All right, you with me so far? So Nahash was friendly to David for unknown reasons. That's 2 Samuel 10.1, if you want to write that. Excuse me, 10.2. Psalm 69, verse 8, shows family hostility um, where his brothers didn't fully accept him. And it's probably because we could safely conject, and I want to qualify that, David was a red-headed half-breed. <laughs> he is the red-headed stepchild. Which also helps to explain why the Lord has to teach Samuel, everybody looks on the outside, but I look on the heart. Which of these is not like the others? Which of these doesn't belong? It's the youngest kid we kept in the field when the prophet came to town because we're kind of embarrassed. He's dad's mistake. Remember the prophet came to town to anoint one of Jesse's boys to be king to replace Saul? And he called, they're all terrified. Remember this story there in 1 Samuel. And the prophet comes to town and the elders of the town of Bethlehem there, Ephrath, they say, uh, have you come in peace? And Samuel says, I've come in peace. I want to talk to Jesse. And Jesse comes, he says, I want to see your boys. So God sent me to anoint one of them to be king. I need to look at all your boys. And one by one, God says, not him, not him, not him. Is this all the men? He doesn't ask sons now because obviously there's something wrong. He says, is this all the men? Well, there's a boy out in the field. Well, go get him. Why don't they bring him in? If they're terrified of what the prophet might do to them, why don't they bring him in? Except maybe they don't count him as a true son. Maybe they're terrified that the prophet has come to judge them for this great egregious sin. But either way, he comes in and the Lord says, that's him, that's David, that's my king. Anoint him with oil. So the red-headed kid gets anointed with oil. All right. David is introduced in 1 Samuel. Actually, I guess we should go there. Let's go there. We want to lay a big foundation. I want us to judge tonight. We're going to look at David and we're going to look at a positive, a strength that he never tempered. Because we've all got that as well. And maybe, maybe it doesn't fit you. Just look for something that you've had in you a long time that the Lord's wanting to balance. I say, if there was anything the Muslim boss had to balance in me, I was a little too flippant. I was a little too carefree. Hippies typically are. It's an escape mechanism. They act like it's cool to not care, but you need to care sometimes. You know, the hip, the t I wasn't like a stoner hippie. I wasn't like, man, no, I thought those guys were idiots. Um, I was just a little like, chill out, man, loosen up. And the boss is like, we loosen up, bridges collapse. We're not loosening up. You loosen up again, I fire you. And that was every time he came to town, I was getting fired. <laughs> All right, I guess I should tighten up. He tightened up my standard and made me want to care. So maybe there's something in you that's too loose and needs to be tightened up. It's too tight, needs to be loosened up. That could be the case. Some folks are like born tight. 
<laughs> they're born just hanging on to that umbilical cord. They don't want to come out. And ever, ever since then, they've been stressed. <laughs> and that is some of you because I passed you. Some of you wound so tight. Maybe the Lord needs to break that of you and let you just chill out. I mean, loosen up a little bit. Have some fun. Smile. It won't break your face. We might fall over because we don't ever see you smile. But 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed king. Um, we just kind of ran through that talking about it. But in 14, 15, 16, we're not going to read it. The spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and an evil spirit comes upon him and he begins to be troubled. And his advisors, King Saul's advisors, can see that he's being demonically buffeted. And they had enough of a demonology doctrine to know this isn't good. Let us uh, fix this. We need to get the king some help. So verse 17, and Saul said unto his servants, provide me now a man that can play the harp well and bring him to me. His Verse 16 says, let's find a man who the Spirit of God is upon, and they can play the harp, and that'll cause you some relief. Verse 18, then answered one of the servants and said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now look at David's reputation from the time he's about 14. He's called a lad, a boy. This is his reputation. Now, Bethlehem's only five miles from Jerusalem, so we're not talking like 100 miles away or 200 miles away. It's a two-hour walk. And we're not talking New York City, so it's not like there's a million people. But there's a reputation of this red-headed boy, which probably is why he's known, because he's a red-headed shepherd boy running around the fields of Jerusalem watching sheep. Who's that kid? I'm like, when did we start making redheads around here? <laughs> yeah. There's a kid. He's cunning and playing. That is, he's anointed with the harp. A mighty, valiant man. At 14, this kid is known for his courage. He's brave. 14 or 15. He's a man of war. How in the world does a 15-year-old kid already have a reputation in the king's court that he's not to be messed with? And what's your 15-year-old's reputation? at Minecraft. Ah, man, he's fierce. That kid can dig some blocks out. Huh? It's not marriage material, mamas. You need to fix that. <laughs> Prudent in matters. That means he has good judgment and a comely person. It's good looking and you can't help that. You know, either you're born with it or you airbrush it on. These other things... <laughs> can be developed and mamas and dads should be developing them in their children. I think if David can have this reputation, so can our kids by 14, 15. I think our daughters can be anointed in singing unto the Lord. If they can't sing good, give them an instrument. Amen. I'm serious about it. Uh, yeah. I mean, at least get a bucket and beat on it for the Lord Jesus. You can be a mighty valiant person. That means just courageous. Everybody should be courageous. I don't understand why spirit-filled Christians raise insecure kids. We have the Holy Ghost. We pray in tongues. We cast out demons. And we raise weird, insecure kids. How is that working? Man of war. Well, we don't go swinging a sword, but we pray and intercede. Your kids ought to be able to say it too. Get off me, sickness. I am healed. They ought to be able to rebuke their nightmares and rebuke shadows in the room. And you teach them how to go swing a sword in the spirit. 
speak the word of God. Mommy, pray for me. Daddy, pray for me. That's swinging a sword at three years old. Prudent matters. Our kids ought to be smart, not stupid. Pray wisdom over your kids so they make the right decisions and don't run with idiots. Amen. It ought to be easy because idiots are bound right now. Comely person, again, you can't help that. That's like luck of the draw right there. Even two good-looking people, their fifth kid can come out of ugliest sin because you're just playing the genetics raffle, and eventually you're going to draw ugly. <laughs> it's just going to be the wrong combination of parts, and we're just going to call them scraps. <laughs> May they sing beautifully. Most importantly, number six is God is with them. This kid, he's a lad. This is his reputation in the king's court. I look at that, and I think for us who are parenting kids still, I'm going to get that in my kids. Let that be their reputation. But I want you to see at 13, 14, 15, he's already known as a man of war. He's aggressive. And I would say my judgment is probably because he was bullied. And we will, you can see that if you'll read his story through Samuel. When he comes to the barracks, when Goliath is in the field and the Philistines are encamped against him and his oldest brother starts bullying him, and the first thing David says is, what have I done now? That's what it says in the King James. What have I done now? I just brought you 10 pieces of cheese and a whole bunch of bread, and now you're on me again. You can hear the bullying. You can hear the incessant pain of David. So he's probably a scrapper. Not every kid breaks that way when you bully him. Some kids you bully, they bully back. Other kids you bully, they become timid and insecure. David, he'd been bullied, and it feels like he enjoyed killing lions and bears. And he just pretended like it was his older brother, Eliab. Huh. So we jump to 1 Samuel 17. We know here's the story of Goliath, and he, his dad sends him to go check on it. Uh, obviously, they get David. David comes. He plays the harp. I'm going back to chapter 16, in the chapter. He's known for being a mighty man of valor, but he's also a wonderful worship leader at 13 and 14. He's a wonderful worship leader and can knock demons off the king at 13 and 14. He is not even born again. He's not a tongue talker. And the 14-year-old, 15-year-old kid can play the harp and drive a demon off the king of Israel. We should have higher expectations for our kids than just Minecraft level up. Amen. 1 Samuel 17, verse 14. And David was the youngest out of the brethren. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul. So we acknowledge that he was serving Saul. And at some point he left from playing the harp from Saul. He left Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Of course, now we have the Goliath situation. And um, Jesse sends David with a bunch of food to go check on the brothers that are in the army of the Israelites. And David hears the story and he shows up and he's asking about the reward. Look at verse 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why come you down here? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the naughtiness of your heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David says, What have I done now? Is there not a cause here? And David turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And uh, the same answered him again after the former manner. So 
Here's the thing we see with David. He's 14 years old. He comes down to bring his brother some food, and he says, what's going on? And they say, well, there's this Philistine giant over here. And uh, every morning he comes out, he threatens us. He beats his, his sword on his shield and says, who will come and fight me? And uh, we just sit here and shake. So David, he's just the Aaron kid. He's just bringing food for the three brothers. And so his question is, all right, so the guy that kills the giant, what's he get? And he just keeps going through the barracks, asking guy after guy. That's when Eliab interrupts him, says, you're just a naughty boy. He's like, no, no, I want to make sure the story's right. What's the guy get who kills the giant? He's not scared. He's not concerned. His, his gears are turning. This is the kid you're scared of. Because when the army's nervous and the 14-year-olds want to know if the deal's sweet enough to even go out there and do it, this is a kid... <laughs> The grown soldiers are nervous, King is nervous, and the 14-year-old who's got cheese wedges under his arms, he's like, no, tell me, is this true? Did you hear the same thing? The guy that kills him gets the king's daughter and up to half the kingdom? Is that what you heard? Well, let me drop this cheese. Is that what you heard? And that's where Eliab says, what are you doing here? You're just naughty. So when the words, verse 31, were heard, which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. Now, Saul knows the kid because he'd been playing the harp for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of the giant. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He's 14, but he's already in reputation. He's a man of war. And I love this because this is a strength. This is his lived experience. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth or a lad, and he's been a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, your servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after him, and I smote him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. So it's like I hit him once, it knocked him free. He got mad, and when he was closer, I grabbed him by the beard, and I hit him again and killed him the First hit didn't kill him. The second hit did. I had to make sure I finished it. You ever grab a lion face to face? <laughs> and this is why this kid's fearless. Because the dangerous part of the lion is not his mouth. It's those claws. We were in South Africa a couple years ago, a long time ago now. We got to go to that Indian park, uh, Indian park, with the Indians. We went to the lion park. We went to a game preserve and they had a lion park. <laughs> and we got to pet lions. They leaned up against the cage, and the holes were big enough to put your arm through there, which you don't do. But we pet these lions. And to sit there and look at that lion, I mean, I could have kissed it on the mouth if I wanted to because it's right there. And they're not telling you don't do that. They're, they just assume you're smart enough <laughs> to not do that. And uh, we, we drove the car in there, and Pastor Raj was in the back, and it was his car and the lions, remember that, Miss And you guys were in the back. You and my wife were in the back. And the lion put his paws on the back window. And the paws were like as big as the Bible. Is that right? Oh, goodness. I was really worried about it pushing the window in, but that lion was like pushing the car walking and then jumped down. And Pastor, so Pastor somebody said, Casey, drive, drive quickly. Casey, Casey, quickly. <laughs> I think Raj was in the back too. He was a little nervous. So to pet these lions... It was just, it was magnificent and beautiful to be that close once we got out. <laughs> Not that close. I was in the front seat. But to be that close on that, once we got out, you could go up and just pet these lions, and they don't mind being petting. What was funny is some Indians pulled up, 
and the little two-year-old toddler got out, and all the lions stood up. And the Indian said, yeah, they are looking at lunch. <laughs> and they did. All those lions were chill with us as soon as a little Indian. And then I think Pastor Raj says, he can smoke curries on the Indian. But the lions stood up like, ah, yeah. I was like, put the kid back in the car. But to grab a lion by the face after you've already made it mad and then to kill it. This kid, he knows no fear. He's only 13 or 14. This is his lived experience. He's testifying. This is nothing for me. Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know what I do every day? This guy's nothing. He doesn't have claws. He has a beard. This is nothing. This is easy. He's already standing. I just run up his body, grab his beard, and just crack him. It's, it's an easy thing. I caught him by his beard, and I smote him, and I slew him. Your servant slew both the lion and the bear. Now, you need to note, modern translations pointed out, these are plural words. This isn't a one-time event. New Living Translation, Evie, pointed out, I have killed lions and I have killed bears. This is course of habit for this boy. This is his lived experience. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. This is this kid's reputation. And so the king says, all right, here, if you're going to go, take my armor. So David puts on the armor. He says, this doesn't work for me. I'm not used to this. And he leaves it behind. So what he does do is go with what he's familiar with, which is five smooth stones. And the reason behind that is because Goliath had four brothers. You kill one, you got, you got to have some more bullets because they might come out and want vengeance. You can search that out throughout Samuel. Uh, so then he goes out to meet Goliath. And Goliath says, uh, verse 42, When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. So I guess he was like a real Irish kid, redheaded and very fair-skinned. <laughs> and the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog? that thou comest to me with staves. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, This guy is 10 feet tall. Here's a 14-year-old redheaded Jewish boy <laughs> wearing flip-flops with a couple rocks in his pocket. You just have to think about the scenario. This is a guy that has a whole army terrified. And this kid, uh, you know, sticks out. He doesn't look like all the other kids. Been bullied by his brothers his whole life. It's nothing to him. He's used to the insults. He talks smack back to the champion of the Philistines. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day will the Lord deliver you into my hand, and I will smite you, and I will take your head off you. And I will give your car the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day into the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I like it. It's cocky. That's that bravery part. But he knew what to do. Do our kids. So I don't want to spend too much time there. So he wins. We know the story. And then before long, they begin to um, promote him. Saul says, I got to promote the kid. David instant, excuse me, Saul instantly promotes David over his army. 
at 14 and 15. Chapter 18 goes on to say that. Verse 5 says, He set him over the men of war. Then the women began to sing, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Well, David had only killed one, but his reputation is already spreading. So David gets marked and... Uh, Saul becomes very concerned. Saul begins to try to set up traps to get David killed by the Philistines when that won't work because David is good. He says, tell you what, marry my daughter. And David says, I can't. I'm just a poor kid. I can't. I'm just a poor kid. And the implication is I don't have a dowry. And Saul says, you know what? Don't worry about dowries. I don't need money. Bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. It's chapter 18. You can read. Okay, you're looking at me like, seriously? Yes, all right. Chapter 18, verse... 24, the servants of Saul said, told him, saying, On this manner David spake, that I'm too poor and lightly esteemed. I really don't have a dowry. So Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires not any dowry, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Because if you don't know, a man and his foreskin don't easily part. So if you... <laughs> So if you send a 14-year-old and it's like, if you want to marry my daughter, I need 100 Philistine foreskins, that's a death sentence right there. So I love it. David's like, all right, cool. <laughs> and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David. He's like, that sounds like a deal to me. <laughs> it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and slew the Philistine 200 men. Now you got to be scared when you send a kid to die and he comes back with twice the requirement. And I, I don't know how you go about doing all this, but they did it. And I love how the Bible just skips through big chunks of exposition and says, they came back with 200. David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in the full tale to the king that he might be the king's son-in-law, and Saul gave him Michael, his daughter to wife. So uh, we're seeing this is David's lived experience. He's raised killing lions and bears. He's fearless. Bloodshed is nothing for them. Goliath, Goliath is nothing to him. He just wants to make sure it's worth his effort. If not, he just takes his cheese wedges and goes back home. 200 foreskins is no big deal. I'm sure the guys are like, are we doing this? Yeah, let's do it. How many you want to go? I don't know. Let's see who can get the most. And they come back with 200. This is nothing for him. He's not stressed. He's not fretting. He's not even praying to God yet. This is the kid's lived experience. This is not a guy you mess with. But he's also a worshiper. He also loves God with all of his heart. <laughs> David flees as Saul implodes, and he makes his followers just like him. Things get worse. You jump a couple chapters in Samuel. We know that David completely is on the outs with Saul. Saul seeks to kill David. Jonathan warns him, my dad is going to kill you. Run away. So, so Saul has a complete mental break. He's completely demonized. And David has to completely flee living with the king and his wife, Michael. He goes and lives in the, um, the castles and the forests and the caves. And men begin to join him. And what's interesting is that we know 600 men eventually join him, and he makes them exactly what he is. His reputation is that he's wise. His reputation is that he's a worshiper. His reputation that he's a brave man of war. These 600 men come to him, and the thing that should concern us 
is that he doesn't make 600 worshipers. He makes 600 men of war. And there's nothing wrong with being a man of war, but it should be tempered. And this is where we begin to see David's lived experience, which is a plus. It begins to sow seeds that are going to come back and hurt him. Why, why could he not make those men also worshipers? He made them brave. He made them wise. He doesn't record him ever teaching them how to play a harp. Why did he keep that to himself? Well, you got to realize that in this season, he's hunted like a dog, so it's fight or flight. Harping it ain't going to help much. But we do know a lot of psalms were written during this season. Why didn't he teach his guys? Like, all right, we're going to have auditions for the choir. Can you sing bass? Can you sing tenor? All right. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Yeah, come on, guys. Let's sing it because I need it right now. No, he just gives them shields and swords and spears because we're running for our lives. This becomes lived experience. This becomes, in a sense, PTSD. He's on edge. Interesting also, he has 600 men, but they don't all equally catch his heart, like in a local church. 600 men join him, but you have 600, but 200 are always kind of faint. They get left by the supplies when things get a little hairy. So then you got 400 great men, but of that 400, you have 40 mighty men of valor. So now you got 40, really got 10% or 15% of your core have really caught your heart. But really, three of the best, the three captains. But of those three, you got one who surpasses all. Even in a great leadership like this, you still have concentric rings of those that catch the heart who really become what they were trained to be. Because not everybody's as hungry as they claim to be. All right. Learn anything? David goes on. He's got these mighty men of valor. He cuts Saul's skirt. They're hiding in the cave. He's not fearful. He sneaks up while uh, Saul is relieving himself. He's covered his ankles, which means he's making heavy. And this guy's like, hey, there, the Lord's delivered him into your hands. Sneak up there. Kill him. So David sneaks up and says, I can't kill him. This is like my father-in-law. I love this man. He's just crazy. Cuts his skirt, repents of it. He steals Saul's water bottle. Could have killed him at night in the camp. Repents of it. He took 400 men. I'm just wanting you to see David's bravery and his strength of brutality. When David is mistreated by Nabal, he's so offended. This is a farmer. He's a, like a plantation owner. He has a massive estate, lots of sheep, wealthy man. They won't give him any supplies, so he tells 400 men, lives 200 at the supplies. He tells 400 men, get your swords we're going to burn something to the ground. He's going to go to war against a farmer with 400 men. That's overkill. He doesn't even try diplomacy. He's just so much on edge. I'm just going to kill Nabal and everybody for disrespecting me. Of course, Abigail, his future wife, comes out. She has wisdom. She pacifies him. Nabal ends up dying of a heart attack, and, and David marries Abigail. He flees to Gath. Uh, wants to, he says, if I'm going to get away from Saul, let me just flee down to Philistia. He flees down to Philistia. He becomes king, uh, friends with the king of uh, Philistia, king of Gath. And he says, give me a city. So the king gives him a Ziklag, and that becomes a place where he lives for 16 months. And from that city of Ziklag, he and his men constantly go on war parties because they have nothing else to do. 
Really, you study it. They go on constant war parties. But what he's doing while he's running from Saul, he's using Ziklag, which belongs to the Philistines. He used it to destroy other Philistine cities. But he has to make sure he kills everybody totally because the king of Gath totally trusts him. So when the king of Gath says, where have you been? Oh, I've been pillaging the Jews. That's what the Bible says. And I've been really wearing it out to those Israelites. In the meantime, he's wiping out Philistine city after Philistine city after Philistine city because one day he's going to be king and he's just going ahead and taking care of his light work right now. Because he's a man of war. And that's his lived experience. And it's a good thing until it's not. <laughs> For sport, he and his 600 invade the Geshurites, the Gezerites, the Amalekites. He wipes them out. No survivors, so they can't tattletale back to Achish, king of Gath. In 1 Samuel 29, 5, he's going with his men of war, the 600, with the Philistines to fight against Saul. But the princes of the Philistine, the five princes, they know David's reputation. This is a man of war. This is a brilliant military tactician. Why, O king, are you taking him to war with us? He will certainly kill us to win favor with his king. So they make David go home. So David says, well, that's a bummer. But when they get back to Ziklag, this is when the Amalekites have burned it, raided it, and stolen all their women. So he just redirects. I believe it's the providence of God because if he'd gone to war, all of his children and wives have been taken even further. They had never recovered them. So even the princes did him a favor by saying, you can't go to fight with us. Go home, David. Goes home, Ziklag's on fire. So they mount up. They do another war party. They go after the Amalekites. They wipe them out utterly except for 400 young men that ride away on camels. They recover all the spoils, and they go back and they start distributing the wealth to all the Israeli cities or the Israelite cities. This is what he does. He's just killing left and right. It's his strength. It's his lived experience. He's being hunted like a dog. He's friends with this king. He's out on the outs with that king. Then he flips it up. This is where he's at. He's a musician, but he ain't playing any harps right now. David gets kicked out of one battle just to return to fight another one. David's brutality has Saul's executioner killed. Saul dies that day in battle. He's wounded mortally. He calls out to a Pharaoh, a, a, an Egyptian, or an Amalekite, excuse me. He says, hey, come kill me. I'm dying. And the Amalekite kills him, kills Saul and then goes and tells David, thinking he's done David a favor. And David says, you shouldn't have said that. And David has one of his young men murder him. There's no reason to. There's no reason to kill the guy. But he does it anyway. Later, when um, Saul's son Ishbosheth becomes king, trying to take it back from David, Two of Ishbosheth's servants murder him, cut his head off, bring the head to David. And David said, When the guy killed your master, I had no mercy. What makes you think I'm going to have mercy when you kill an innocent man in his own bed while he sleeps? And he has those guys brutally murdered too. David massacred Zion, the city of Zion, when he came into it when he didn't need to. Remember, he comes to the stronghold of David, the stronghold of Zion, there in Jerusalem. It's a fortification within the city of Jerusalem. And he, he comes to it, and the Zionists, or really they are um, Jebusites. It's a stronghold of the Jebusites. The Jebusites say, even your blind and your weak, even our blind and weak will keep David out. 
And so David says, whoever kills these guys is my right-hand man. He doesn't even bother to negotiate. He doesn't say, come on, guys. You've heard what I'm doing. I'll make you servants. I'll be good to you. He doesn't even attempt diplomacy. He just says, any of you guys can take this stronghold. You're my right-hand guy, and Joab qualifies. What you see is unnecessary bloodshed at, at a certain point. It goes too far. It's a strength, but any strength untempered will destroy you. Any doctrine not pruned will grow wild. Any strength not balanced with the antithesis of it in the Scripture will hurt you. Knowledge is good, but knowledge without love puffeth up. Zeal is good, but zeal without knowledge will ruin you. Everything has a balance. What we end up doing too much is resting on our strengths without ever working on our weaknesses. And so sometimes the very thing that is a strength can destroy us. If you have a good intellect, that can hurt your walk with Christ. But having a good intellect is certainly better than being super low IQ. Having a good heart is great, but if you have a good heart without wisdom, you'll be taken advantage of. Prayer is great, but if you never read your Bible, you're in trouble. Reading your Bible is great, but if you never pray, you're in trouble. So our strengths have to be tempered. This is David's lived experience. He, this is just what he does. He's just really good at killing. He's fearless. David destroyed the Ammonites over a misunderstanding. And that is when... Uh, Nahash dies, the king that was good to David. Nahash, the same father of his half-sister, Abigail. Nahash dies. The king passes away. So his son, uh, Hanan, becomes king. And David says, hey, let me be good to this young king because his daddy was so good to me. We don't know how he was good to him, but he was. So he sends down some diplomats to be good to him. Say, hey, David sends his regards, sends his condolences. Here's uh, some tribute. We want to bless you. Uh, and so the advisors to the new, new young king says, this is a trap. David's looking for an advantage. So the king says, what should we do? And the guys say, evil and treat them, which means shave off half their beards and cut the back of their britches off so that their buttocks can be seen. That's in your Bible. You know the story? Shave off half their beards and cut off the back of their britches so that their buttocks are exposed and send them home. And I think these guys came home purposely like that. I'd have grabbed somebody's towel, wrapped it around my bottom. But they come home to say, look, <laughs> see half his beard? You see me blowing in the wind? And David says, this is what I get for my well wishes. And he tells Joab, get the men. And when they realize what they've done, the Ammonites, they hire 10 or 20,000 soldiers out of Syria. And David sends down there and wipes everybody off the map over a misunderstanding. It's a little extreme, don't you think? But this is what I'm good at. This is my lived experience. Not necessary here, David. As a side note, before we kind of wrap this thing up here, David's final sin was the census, this major sin, when the devil provoked him to number the people. But it wasn't just a census for the population. The Bible records that Joab, who's the military leader, is sent out to count men who can handle the sword. So even his last act of sinful pride is revolving around military prowess. 
And that's when he falls under the judgment. He's given three options, three months plague, uh, or three years plague, three months out of the enemies of Israel, or three days the hand of God. He says, let me fall under the hand of God for three days. All of it is military might. And so uh, can we pull up New Living Translation real quick? Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. This is where I want to show you his lived experience because it was not tempered. He had no racial issues. He had no cultural issues. He had no tribal issues. It was a strength. His lived experience built upon his strength, but he never tempered his strength. He had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. First Chronicles chapter 28, please. After opportunity to temper this thing, to try some diplomacy, to try to be friendly. You got it? Verse 3. Go back to verse 2. David rose to his feet and said, My brothers and my people, it was my desire to build a temple where the ark of the Lord's covenant, God's footstool, could rest permanently. I made the necessary preparations for building it. But God said to me, You must not build a temple to honor my name, for you are a warrior and have shed much blood. It disqualified him. His lived experience, built on nothing but his strength, disqualified him. It was in his heart, his right motive. And God says, I can't let you do it. Some, some of it was necessary. He was anointed to kill Philistines. But when you, when you read the whole life of David, we don't have time tonight, you see his anointing is for Philistines. He killed way more than that and unnecessarily. We often fall into this trap to think just because God is using us in our strength that we're okay with it. But I've taught you for years, you need to work on your weaknesses. That's what's going to hurt you. In this regard, David's weakness was a lack of control. It was, if you read the Psalms, there's no doubt David had some emotional instability. And when you get angry and you're good at killing... What do you do? You kill. So one more verse. But let me ask you this. So what's your lived experience? What have you had to get good at, but you haven't trusted God in doing it? Your defense mechanism. This is David's defense mechanism. David had the hand of God on him for everything he did but this. And this is the first thing God ever said. Nope. I want you to see you can disqualify yourself from things you'd like to do for God. Solomon means son of peace. That was not David. David didn't have to kill as many people as he did. Most of those situations could have been handled other ways. And yet the, the, the dichotomy of it is he was so generous to so many Gentiles. Yet he didn't suffer fools very well. Not much of a man of mercy, but he begged for it all the time. Last verse, 2 Samuel 23.10. Let's throw this in the NIV, excuse me, NLT. 2 Samuel 23.10, because this is what David did. This is not David, but this is one of his mighty men of valor. 2 Samuel 23.10. Go to the previous verse. I can't remember his name. Abishiah? Nope. Eleazar. Next in rank among the three was Eleazar, son of Dodai, a descendant of Ahoah, 
Once Eleazar and David stood together against the Philistines when the entire Israelite army had fled. Next verse. He killed Philistines until his hand was, so, was too tired to lift his sword. It's a horrible translation. I should have never chosen it. My Bible says his hand clung to the sword. He couldn't let go. Is that what yours says? Stuck. He, he, I think some of us have worked hard in the field, swinging a hammer, where you, you can swing something so hard you can't let go of it. Anybody ever done that? You construction guys, Robert? When I, uh, when I go bolting routes in a cave, we have to use a Hilti drill. And usually after about four or five hours of using a Hilti drill, I can't open my hand. And I have to pry it open, and I have to sit there and work it out. That's four or five hours of just ran, you know, every 10 minutes using a Hilti drill to drill a little five-inch hole into some rock. I can't imagine swinging a sword so long. You've killed hundreds of men, and you can't even let go of the sword. This describes David. He had been so much a man of war, he couldn't let it go. Now, I only know this because the Lord rebuked me on it. And when I first took over our church, we were under attack from the inside and the out. This church was a cesspool when I took it over. It was debaucherous. I don't justify it. I'll tell you anything you want to know about it. I'll tell you all the dirt on this church because I have nothing to hide. I had to clean house. I had to run people off. I had to clean up the finances. I had to clean up leadership. It's a debaucherous hellhole this church was. We should have been wiped out, but God was merciful. But that takes a lot of strength. And when you're thrust into it, and all you know is swinging the sword, cleaning house, you kind of think that's just ministry. <laughs> and so you're taking over the church. You're not intending to stay here long anyway. So who cares who comes or goes or leaves? If you're a visitor, I'm going to prove you because I don't know who you are. And I really don't care. And so you're just kind of cleaning house, running people off and proving folks. And if God will fire me, I'll go back to the zinc mine and it'll be all well with my soul. But we had to fight a lot of battles. And uh, at some point, I didn't recognize it, but the war was over. And I didn't know how to transition. And... I would call Dr. Barclay, and I could look back now and hear the wisdom he was giving me. He didn't understand fully where I was at. How could he? But he was saying, look, I remember calling him one time. I felt like I'd fallen out of favor. He said, there's two ways to handle this. He said, you sound like a scrapper. I said, yeah, that's about what I do. He said, you can go scrap this. Go to war. Curse them. Or <laughs> make a phone call and ask them what's up. And at that moment, I wanted to scrap. Let's curse them. That's what I've been doing to everybody else, just praying them in, out of existence, out of my way, out of my church, out of the opposition. i got to get this church clean. You get so obsessed, you, you don't realize how clean things have gotten, and you're still just like scrubbing until you're drawing blood. So I thought, well, let me try this soft thing, and it worked. But just because you try it once doesn't mean your hands let go of the sword. So then something else came up, and I dealt with it <laughs> the old David way. And I went, man, actually just chewed somebody out to the core of their existence, told them their business was worthless, wasn't anything, amounted to nothing in heaven, and if they ever uh, hurt my church again, I'd pray them out of business. That's how I talked to the guy. And uh, felt really good about it in the moment. <laughs> and then I needed a favor about a month later. I didn't think it was personal, just the gospel comes first. I'm tired of people resisting the gospel. Get out of my way. So I needed a favor from the business owner like a month or two later, and I went in, and he wouldn't even talk to me. 
He like ignored me, wouldn't even acknowledge me. And, and I couldn't figure it out. And then my brilliant mind, like, like the bug zapper, oh, I cursed his business to hell last time we talked. <laughs> Told him he was of no eternal count. And I didn't know why he was skipping church to do his stupid business. That could, that could be what's wrong here. And I, I thank God this is like 10 years ago, okay? Like 13 years ago, 14 years, no, 12 years ago. I said, is this about how we talked last time? He said, yes, this is something like that. And I said, yeah. He said, I've never, ever been spoken to like that in my whole life. And I thought, well, then you've never met a real preacher because they will deal with you like that. I didn't say that to him. I said, I want you to forgive me. I shouldn't have said the things I did. It was a little too rough. I'm very zealous for my church. And I was angry. And I was angry for my God. I'd ask you to forgive me. I shouldn't have said it. I meant it. But I shouldn't have said it. And I could have handled it better. And he instantly forgave me because he's a good Christian guy. And so I thought, well, praise God. And he gave me the favor I needed. And as soon as I came back to the church and walked in the back doors, the Lord spoke to me about this verse. Pull up on King James, if you would. How his hand would not cleave to the sword. He, uh, would, we fought so long, he wouldn't let it go. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave into the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. So I walk in the back door and the Lord said, he, he reminded me of this verse and he said, he rebuked me. He said, you can win this city through war because that's what I've been doing for two and a half years, those days. He said, or you can win it through favor. And I instantly said in my heart, Lord, I take favor because I'm exhausted. I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. And then he reminded me of the man whose hand claved to the sword. I said, yeah, Lord, that's it. I don't know how to let this thing go. And then the Lord taught me about David and said, and David could not build me a temple when he wanted to because he could never let go of the sword. But for me, I learned that in two and a half years. I went from kind of a passive, kind of a, you know, nice, hippie, make you laugh guy to you come against me, I'll just pray you out of church and pray I don't pray you to an early death because I'll do that. That may freak you out, but there's a permission to pray someone that they, Satan would destroy them so their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I went from I don't know what I'm doing to I'll just curse your business to hell because you're opposing what I'm doing for God. And I couldn't undo it. That was my lived experience, except I was wrong with God. It got to a point where it went too far. And the Lord had to deal with me very supernaturally, very strong about it to just mellow out and just chill. It's a good thing when you need it, but you, you got to have it on demand, not just be a one trick pony. So this is where I've also learned you can't say, well, this is just who I am. Well, be something better. Add a different flavor. You don't have to just be this. You don't just have to be rude all the time. You don't have to just be a sissy all the time. You don't have to just be mopey all the time or happy all the time. There's a full gamut of things we should learn. And if you'll pay attention, God has you in some station of life where you're learning a new flavor you've never had before. And he's putting it into you. I don't care about your lived experience. What are you experiencing with God now? Because if your lived experience never changes, it isn't worth anything.
Some folks are so hung up on their lived experience, they just keep regurgitating the same old debaucherous, erroneous doctrine. I was hurt. I was hurt. I was hurt. Yeah, 30 years ago, shut up and move on. So let's ask ourselves, where does your hand still cleave? Does it cleave to unforgiveness? Does it cleave to fear? Does it cleave to worry? Does it cleave to ignorance, shame, embarrassment? Is it PTSD? PTSD is a place where your hand still cleaves to whatever traumatic thing you went through. The Lord will certainly set you free from any of that. Let me read you one last verse. You don't, don't turn there. I saw this today, and I underlined it. Just write down 1 Samuel 18, 28. This will help somebody. And 29. And Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, his daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David. And Saul became David's enemy continually. Fear will always set you as an enemy against whatever you're afraid of. And it's horrible when it's people. So you've got to get rid of that fear. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. For me, I learned aggression to fight for this church and to, to knock sin out of it and squash things that hadn't been squashed in years. So my, my sword was not fear. I was too fearless in those days. My sword was aggression. But maybe your sword is fear. Can you unpry your fingers and let that thing go? Is it shame? There's a good shame. There's a good fear. But you can go too far, and it can ruin your life. When I was a hippie, I didn't pay enough attention to detail. I could have stayed so long in the engineering firm, I became obsessed with the ninth decimal place, and that would make my wife miserable. And my kids can't live up to the ninth decimal place. They're kids. So there's a balance to that. So what I want us to see is judge your lived experience by the Word of God. See what you keep. See what you flush. See what needs to be tempered. See what needs to be balanced. Because I don't mind being aggressive when I need to, but now anymore, I mean, AJ will tell you, I just like, well, whatever. Sometimes I come in, I'm like, no, we're not doing that, but it isn't every decision. Sometimes I think he'd like for me to do some things he wants fixed, and I'm like, eh, whatever. Are you, now, pastor, are you sure? Now, pastor, I'll do whatever you tell me. If you just tell me shut up and do it, I'll do it. All right, yeah, that. Shut up and do that. <laughs> but in those early years, man, God have mercy on you because I will not. <laughs> it did help. I started having kids, too. That always helps. Have you learned anything? Amen.